Welcome to Clear Thinking, the GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Sampos. On today's podcast, are there fragments of Christmas hymns in the New Testament? Ken, this is that time of year where we're thinking about such wonderful things and singing them. I know you have favorite hymns, but you're suggesting that uh, we can look even to the New Testament for early hymns. Is that correct? That's right on the money, Joe. Uh, What's interesting is there is a new perspective. Now, usually when I hear that word new perspective, I get nervous (laughs) in theology because one of my goals in life is not to be original, stay with historic Christianity, stay with scripture. But there is a fairly new uh, perspective that there are creeds and hymns that particularly Peter and Paul dispersed in their writings. And uh, since this is the Christmas season, I want to do two programs on this. And and of course, the incarnation or what we celebrate during the Advent season, that's just right at the heart of historic Christianity. So I think this is going to be interesting. And I encourage our listeners to open up to Philippians chapter two, because that's our key passage. Wonderful. And you're going to talk about a passage here, uh, verses 5 through 11, and I'm going to read it when uh, it's time to do so. That's right. Well, let me just say a couple things uh, about uh, the importance of Christmas. Uh, Obviously, the church calendar, uh, the beginning of the church calendar, and we've had that for centuries you could the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed, Methodist, uh, virtually all of Christendom has a church calendar. And right at the beginning of it is called Advent, which is a word that means coming. So uh, the focus during the Christmas season is to celebrate uh, the birth of Christ. Now, was he born on December 25th? It's debated. Uh, when he was born. But I want to give you a couple quotes, Joe, that have been very meaningful to me. Um, Of course, one of them comes from C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. He says, in light of Christmas, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. He's really kind of uh, quoting Athanasius there. Uh, in, In Athanasius's book, On the Incarnation, which, by the way, would be a great little paperback to read during this time, Lewis is talking about this powerful truth that the Son of God, God in human flesh, becomes a man to enable us to become sons of God. Now, here's another passage that I love during this season. Uh, This is from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which is a modern classic. He has a chapter on the Incarnation, That would be another great read during this uh, Advent season. This is what Packer says. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Joe, I I don't think we, here's my concern. I think we've become so familiar with with Christmas. It's such a part of our life that maybe we have uh we're we are not aware 
of how powerful this truth of the incarnation is. And I want to give you one more quote. And for a long time, I thought this came from Neil Armstrong, uh, Apollo 11, first man to walk on the moon. I was mistaken. Uh, this is a quote that comes from Jim Irwin of Apollo 15. Um, and I'm I was helped by that because I gave that I gave that quote and a student of mine at Biola, a young guy named Stuart Gray, he said, hey, I had that poster on my wall growing up and he gave me the source. Uh, here is the quote from Jim Irwin. Again, Apollo 15, 1971. Uh, it's from his book, To Rule the Night, uh, The Discovery Voyage of Astronaut Jim Irwin, published in 1973. Here's the quote, and I love it. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. One more time, Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. I love it. This is the visited planet, Joe. God mm -hmm. has come. And, and think of how important that is to people who say God's hidden. How important is it? You know, I, I hear critics say, why doesn't God just walk in the room and introduce himself? He did. It's a historical truth. So that's kind of the backdrop uh, for this truth. And of course, my favorite passage uh, about the incarnation is the Philippians 2 passage. So Joe, I'm going to have you read it, and then we're going to spend two programs just taking it piece by piece and seeing how important this is. Indeed, and you're going to uh, lay out some of the apologetic significance over these two uh, podcasts. So hang in there with us. You're going to enjoy it. All right, here's the passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. Wow. What a what a great passage. Um this has come to be known Joe the Carmen Christi um, as I mentioned briefly, and again, we'll unpackage uh, how scholars came to this conclusion, this appears to be a hymn that the early church confessed, and uh, Paul here uh, took that hymn or parts of that hymn, and he weaved it into his Philippian epistle. Uh, and we see it in other places. Paul uh, does it in other places, and I'm going to give you some of the details of that. But look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul here is talking about the critical importance of humility. And how does he illustrate uh, the danger of pride and the virtue of humility? He says that God 
uh, took the ultimate step of becoming a man. And you notice, Joe, in, in the language that's used, it, it has what we call a high Christology, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but made himself nothing, becoming a servant. Um, you know, the, the struggle with pride is, uh, is a difficult one. Um, my personal view is I think that maybe intellectual people or people who are given to learning and scholarship, the life of the mind, one of the things we have to watch out for is pride. Um, and Paul here is in a Philippian church, and there's bickering going on, and so he uses the incarnation as a way of illustrating uh, the importance of Christian virtue. Now, a couple other things before we kind of parse this out a little bit. Uh, Philippians was probably written, Joe, around 61 to 62 AD. If that's right, then this uh, epistle was probably written right before Paul was ultimately martyred. Um, virtually everyone agrees that uh, Peter and Paul died in the Neronian persecution somewhere between 62, uh, 64, or 66. And uh, in reading the Philippian epistle, it's clear that Paul is in prison. Now, again, um, there is debate. Could this be the imprisonment at Caesarea, or is it at Rome, or another time? Uh, not everybody agrees, but I think the best uh, the best estimation is that Paul is in Rome. This is right before he is, uh, in fact, martyred. And you know, as we develop this idea, this is a new perspective, and I, I want to. I want to lay out some of the apologetic challenges, and then we'll come to see how they are met, I think, in this passage. Remember, liberal scholars, by liberal, I don't mean politically, although uh, political liberalism usually has differing ideas even about morality. Uh, for example, in America, the liberal churches ordain, sometimes ordain homosexuals. Uh, so you have, when I talk about liberalism, I mean it primarily theologically, but it never stays just in the theology. It's affected in how people uh, live their lives. Well, uh, this new perspective, uh, you know, it challenges the idea that um, is posed by differing scholars. Uh, Bart Ehrman, for example, who was once an evangelical, is a well-known New Testament scholar. He doesn't believe that Jesus was God. He doesn't believe Jesus thought himself was God. He believes that um, Jesus was just a man, and over the course of three or four centuries, the uh, Christian church um, deified him. Uh, and so this has long been a, a critical challenge. Now, Let's look at this ancient Jewish Christian hymn, and here I'm going to quote Larry Hurtado. Uh, Hurtado was, was died, died a couple years ago. He was a New Testament scholar, an ancient historian, and his work is really worth uh, getting to know. I'm going to recommend some of his books uh, a little bit later, but notice what he says here. 
He says, although the idea does not seem to have occurred to anyone prior to the early 20th century, it is now the dominant view of the New Testament scholars that Philippians 2, 6 through 11, uh, preserves or derives from an early Christian hymn or Christological ode whose origin, whose original province was in the setting of corporate worship. Now, I think this is very important for people to, to appreciate. It's kind of lost on maybe evangelicals in particular, Joe. What I mean by that is the early Christian church was a confessing church. I'm looking here in my Bible at Romans 10, starting at verse 9, which is a verse that uh, Christians uh, well know. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's the earliest creed. Jesus is Lord. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you have believed and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Christians sang hymns, they sang creeds. Um, what, uh, what Hurtado is suggesting here, Joe, is that this creed or this hymn, Carmen Christi, with a high Christology, Jesus being God, this was not uh, an evolved understanding of Jesus being voted as deity. Rather, the earliest Christology was a very high Christology. And uh, so this is a, this is a critical part of that. And I think it's exciting to realize that the early Christians, they sang hymns, they sang about Christ, they, they held him in, in uh, high regard. Now, let me, let me introduce some of the evidence for why scholars think that there are these creeds and hymns that appear in Scripture. Uh, another New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, he describes the basis in which scholars have identified these primitive hymns and creeds that appear to have been embedded in, in the parts of Scripture. So uh, Philippians dates from 61 to 62, but the hymn that it reflects, Joe, probably goes back to the uh, late 30s or early 40s. Mm. So these creedal statements and hymns are much older than the epistles in which they appear. So we're we're getting a picture here of primitive Jewish Christian Christology. Um, and I think that that's a devastating blow to this idea that, you know, the early Christians didn't worship God. Now here's Blomberg. He says, numerous texts of highly poetic Greek filled with tightly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine and, and the incarnation is fundamental Christian doctrine, in styles that, uh, that often differ from those of the epistle writers themselves, and which seem to be set apart as self-contained entities within the letters in which they appear, prove likely candidates for early Christian creeds or confessions of faith. So, you know, you're reading in Philippians, and I can read enough in Greek that I can see I can detect what Blomberg is saying. When I go to that Philippian epistle, I discover that it it it's almost like the writing style changes, Joe. And mm. you're an editor. You can pick this up. 
you know, it the Philippian epistles pretty pretty loose, kind of popularly written, and then all of a sudden, boom, comes this poetic and tightly packed presentation. Well, this has led New Testament scholars to uh, to conclude that in fact this is a this is a hymn. Uh, now, what did Paul do exactly? Did he kind of cut and paste, or did he kind of summarize it? Uh, we're not quite sure of that, but there are a number of places in the New Testament in which this is detected. Uh, we've cited the Philippians 2, 6 through 11, but it's also true of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and 1 Peter 3, 18. And Joe, here's another one, John 1, 1 through 18. Um uh, and, and there are a number of others. So th this is really kind of an amazing thing that the new perspective among New Testament scholars is there are ancient hymns and creeds uh, weaved into the New Testament by not just any apostle, but by the critical inner circle apostle, Peter and Paul. Let, let me pause, see if you have a question or comment before we move a little further. No, just a reaction uh, that, uh, especially given the passages you just cited, some of them are pretty long. Uh, John 1, 1 through 18, I guess it gives me uh, a new appreciation for what went into the New Testament and that they were very careful to uh, talk about Christ uh, and exalt him uh, from the get-go. So, it, it seems to answer the skeptic's challenge right there in the scriptures. Yeah, it's a powerful point. And, and I think another point uh, that I want our listeners to give consideration to, um, you know, many evangelicals don't come from a formal liturgical background. So you, you'll walk into an Anglican church or a Reformed church or a Lutheran church, and you have a liturgy that takes you through a pattern of worship. You'll, you'll recite the creeds. You'll recite the Lord's Prayer. There'll be public reading of, of the scriptures. Um, it appears that even the early church reflected a liturgical approach, and um, therefore Paul was able to draw on some of that material. I remember J.I. Packer uh, Packer was uh, a conservative Anglican, um, and he said that the Book of Common Prayer is the Bible arranged for worship. And I love the Book of Common Prayer because it is that way. It gives you this remarkable way of, of worshiping the Lord in very careful uh, statements that go back a long ways. So I'm encouraging, uh, and again, there are some books I want to recommend uh, for people, but I want to come back to this, um, this high Christology idea. So again, we're focusing on this Philippian, what New Testament scholars, a pericope, a section of, of scripture, if you will. Um, this, this apparent hymn, uh, taken from corporate and liturgical worship of the primitive Jewish and Christian church, uh, has a very high Christology. Uh, and we can see that in, um, 
verse 6, it speaks of Jesus pre-existing in the form of God. The Greek word there is morphe. Uh, Jesus is in the form of God. It denotes an outward manifestation that corresponds to the essence. And so what do we have here? Christ in his pre-incarnate state possessed the sum of those qualities that make God God. Joe, remember in the Nicene Creed, um, and we recite that a, a couple times a year at least, talks about God of God, light of light. This is that reference that Jesus is has the essence of God, the qualities of God. And so again, um, some of these other statements, uh, here's Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1.19. Paul writes this, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, so now, not only we, do we have Christ as God in a pre-incarnate state, but he's God in, in, in human flesh. Uh, and here is 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. Uh, Peter says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The right hand is a metaphor of being equal with God. And notice that the, the creatures, Jesus is not on, if you think of the creator-creature distinction, and the way I'd like to have you think about it is this way, draw a line through the middle of your paper. Above the long line is creator, below the line is creature. Jesus is not below the line. What's below the line are angels and authorities and powers. What's above the line is God. And so uh, we have these statements, and again, they come uh, very early. Um, they reflect, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the earliest Christians. And I, I, I want to I draw another careful point here. Um, I want to make the point that there is such a fundamental difference here, Joe, in what Paul says about Jesus as opposed to Adam. Now, you're very familiar in New Testament theology, Joe, that Jesus is spoken of as the second Adam. Well, the emphasis here is how different Adam and Jesus were. Adam didn't accept humility. He was made in the image of God, but he wanted to be God. And uh, through his choice, he exalted himself above God and committed idolatry. Notice, though, the contrast that Paul here presents. Jesus is so fundamentally different. The second Adam is so different than the first Adam because instead of holding on to his deity, which was rightly his, uh, rather he accepted the idea of taking a lowly state and becoming man. And, and the term that's used, Joe, and I think that this is very powerful, especially today in our culture where we talk a lot about race, gender, and class, and the value of human beings— Paul uses the expression that he became a slave. He became a bond servant. Now, now again, look at those two Adams. It's not good enough for Adam to be created in the image of God. 
Adam wants to be God. Uh, he exalts himself above God. But what does the second Adam do? He has all the privileges of deity. He doesn't have to try to uh, pursue them. He doesn't hold on to them. Uh, and he takes a human nature and becomes man and, and becomes a servant. Man, that's so powerful. And it is so critical, I think, in terms of thinking about the Christian life that, uh, you know, human beings have value. Uh, they have dignity. Um, and we need to be like the second Adam in the sense of recognizing that service and honoring God uh, may, may take the form of humbling yourself rather than exalting yourself. And again, Paul, uh, the great apostle, the great teacher, uh, the ultimate uh, Christian theologian in many ways, uh, Paul has people in, in the Philippian church. And, and you know what, Joe? In the Philippian church, they were a lot like our churches. Um, you know, people get burned by their churches. They get turned off by their churches. They see things in churches that they think are wrong, they feel hurt. Well, what I want to say to that is this. I want to say that all people are made in the image of God, but all people are also fallen. And the church, our churches are made up of fallen people. So it's not uncommon that you'll be disappointed because you're dealing with sinners. In fact, the point you need to realize is you're dealing with people just like you just like me. And here, uh, Paul says, instead of the bickering, let's, let's look at what Christ did. Though he had the privileges of deity, the prerogatives of deity, he was willing to accept this humble state as a human being, and not just as a human being, but to accept crucifixion. Comments? Ideas from you, Joe, before we press on a little bit more here. I'm loving it. Uh, so can you recap the point you've made so far? Because you have several that you want to make. Yeah, very important to appreciate that um, this, is a, this is a new perspective, that uh, this has a lot of apologetic importance. And, and again, I'm going to summarize this a little bit later, but I'll throw it out there at you. Uh, Joe, it's important to realize that while the, these New Testament books are very early in and of themselves, these creeds and hymns are even much earlier. They go right back to uh, Jewish Christianity. They're, this is at a time where there virtually is no Gentiles at all, maybe Luke or a, a few here and there. This is this is Jewish Christianity, and they're exalting uh, deity. So these creeds bring us all the way back, and this really breaks down. I think it crushes the idea that somehow Jesus's deity went through century-long evolution and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna parse this out a bit more as we go along, but I also want to make this point uh, that Christianity is really an incredible uh, development within Judaism. Joe, remember we're in the first century here. These are Jews. They don't worship other human beings. They worship Yahweh alone. 
But Peter and Paul have come to the conclusion that Jesus is an extension of Yahweh himself. And, and that's even found in Philippians 2. Um, let me read this passage here from uh, Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verses 22 and 23. It reads this way, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I myself have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow and, and every tongue will swear. That's Yahweh. And what is Paul doing? He's applying that passage that is only true of Yahweh. He's applying it to Jesus. So there's a lot of apologetic elements here. And for people who think, well, you know, classical Christianity, it comes much later that Jesus never thought he was God. The apostles didn't think that. I think that this is a defeater uh, for those ideas. Now, um, let, let's go a bit further here in this, this uh, passage. And you know what, Joe, I would encourage people uh, and maybe you want to make this part of your devotion during the Advent season. I mean, uh, I know in my family, we like to get together um, during Christmas and during Advent. We like to read passages of Scripture. What if you took Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and, and began to unpackage it, mm -hmm. uh, memorize it, commit it to memory? Now, let's look at a little bit. Uh, further, it says that uh, in verse 7, it says that Christ made himself nothing. Uh, the Greek word is eknosin. This is where we get the word kenosis, emptied himself. Now, Paul doesn't say that in Jesus emptying himself, he gives up his divine nature. No, he remains God. What he gives up is his prerogatives of being uh, in that, in that ultimate uh, pre-existent state. He humbles himself. Uh, you know, he's willing to leave that high position and takes on a, a human nature. And again, I, I, I think that these issues are so common to us. I mean, I've been, I've been singing Christmas carols since I can even remember. Uh, I I go back in my mind to my earliest memories, um, you know, being even a little bit before elementary school, and a lot of it was associated with Christmas, uh, with my parents taking me to church, um, and and so what we what we begin to see here is God takes on a human nature. Well, what would that be like? What would it be like for the infinite? to take a finite human nature. Now, Jesus doesn't stop being God. Uh, you know, when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about one what and three who's. Here in the incarnation, we're talking about one who and two what's. So Jesus is still God, but he also takes a human nature and becomes man. And this is a remarkable uh, statement. We're we're back to Jim Irwin. We're back to the visited planet. We're back to J.I. Packer. This is greater than anything in fiction. Yeah. Uh, Ken, Ken uh, uh, a comment that I'd like you to comment on. It just strikes me in this 
passage of Jesus emptying himself and the way you're describing it, it seems that much of human history has consisted of kings or emperors or great leaders lording it over everybody else. Yeah. You know, it seems that, you know, we have, we have democracies now and maybe we did uh, uh, previously, but it seems like much of human history has not been that way, but it does seem that Jesus was born in that environment. And maybe there were people who thought, here is the king now, but he didn't act that way. <laughs> I'd like to get your comment on that. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, Joey talked about what he called the theology of the cross. And what he meant by that was that when we look when we look to Christianity through the lens of the cross, we see God entering into the world in a way you would never expect. Instead of coming with all the prestige and glory as Caesar would, Alexander the Great would, rather we have this lowly carpenter from Nazareth. And that then ties into the, the next point I want to make. When we look at verses 7 and verses 8, he comes not only as a human being, but he, he is crucified. And crucifixion was, I mean, even some of the Roman poets thought crucifixion was just, oh man, that was the worst thing in the world. So Luther, I think, makes a powerful point. I mean, Anselm, and before that, Athanasius taught us to understand Christianity in light of the incarnation. Luther says, let me fine tune it a bit. Look at it through the cross. So now Jesus is going to come a second time. Luther, Luther calls that the theology of glory. But this is the theology of the cross. And Joe, what I think is, again, important here is the apologetic implication. What do we do with evil, pain, and suffering? Uh, well, Jesus suffered. Uh, God in human flesh took on a human nature. He was tortured. Um, he felt trapped. How do I know that? Uh, the night before his, you know, he's he's betrayed and and uh, put into the hands of the Romans. You know, he asks, "Father, is it possible this cup could pass?" He kind of goads his apostles. You know, can't you stay awake? Uh, Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, I think that this is a very powerful point that uh, Luther is making. Um, I think Luther was really, Joe, giving us a theodicy. This, this is one way to understand evil, pain, and suffering in the world. God has come into the evil pain and suffering, and he's taken it himself. And it even looks, you know, it, until you read the last couple chapters of the Gospels, it looks like Jesus is totally, you know, the victors have dominated him. They've taken him captive. They've publicly humiliated him. He's been killed. And yet out of that pain and suffering and failure comes victory through the resurrection. And, and Joe, this is, uh, this is a point that's not lost even on skeptical scholars. Tom Holland, a historian of ancient Greece, he says this is, this is the remarkable thing about Christianity. 
he says that ultimately it teaches that, um, you know, it, it appears as if it's been defeated. And then out of that ultimate defeat comes this glorious uh, standpoint. And, you know, I, I want to apply this to our culture because we talk a lot about things like there being oppressors and the oppressed. We are, we are very cognizant of the idea that there has been slavery through human history. Uh, we recognize that, um, you know, the Romans thought they were superior, uh, but so did so did so many other cultures as well. But but what do we find with Christ? Um, he sets aside his his glorious state and takes on a human nature, and not only becomes a finite man, but he takes on crucifixion, where the Romans viewed it as look. Um, you want to believe in God? That's that's okay, but uh, if you deny Caesar, we're going to punish you, and we're going to publicly humiliate you. Um, you know, for somebody to die on a tree, that's that's a curse. So I think that this passage, uh, I, I mean, it 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 is just so rich. And it and it reaches us on so many different levels, uh, and and again, let me close it out here uh, as we look at verse nine. It says, "Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name." Uh, and so through through suffering and you know public shame, um, Jesus becomes the one who everyone will bend the knee and they'll confess. And so the Apostle Paul reaches into the Old Testament and applies Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. So what we see here, Joe, is, is staggering. We see the primitive Christian church, it's really a mutation of first century monotheism, where the apostles came to the conviction that, yeah, they only worshiped one God, and that one God was Allah, uh, excuse me, uh, that one God is Yahweh. Um, but now we worship Jesus because in some sense, Jesus is the extension of Yahweh. And uh, this is the passage, by the way, that I, I often read to Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. And I, I take them in the Old Testament, and I say, you know, uh, and I'll use Jehovah instead of Yahweh, uh, I say, only Jehovah, the knee's going to bend and the tongue's going to confess. And they say, right. And I say, well, now in the New Testament, they do that to Jesus. Paul says that will be done to Jesus. The thing that's only true of Yahweh somehow becomes true of, of Jesus. Hmm. Another quotation here from Larry Hurtado. Uh, Again, coming back to this idea, a new perspective, um, Hurtado says the climactic line in verse 11 uh, predict a universal acclamation, Jesus Christ is Lord, which almost certainly confirms that the name above every name given to Jesus in verse 9 is the divine name itself, Lord, Greek, kurios, most likely functions here as a Greek equivalent of Adonai, the familiar reverent substitution for the sacred tetragrammaton and hero in, in Hebrew, the YHWH. Uh, 
In short, Jesus is linked with God in ways that rightly understood are startling and unequaled. Hmm. So this is uh, this is this is great Christian doctrine. This should also influence our doxology, why we get excited about Christmas season, why we want to worship God. But th this is also apologetic ammunition mm -hmm. for the liberals, for the cults, for people who say Jesus is, is not God. This, is, this I think, is a, a devastating thing. And I, I find it so ironic that a new perspective would end up being such a devastating feature for uh, so many liberal scholars. Now, just so you don't get the impression it's only, um, uh, you know, this is only Hurtado, let me quote another uh, conservative theologian, Peter Toon, uh, spelled T-O-O-N, Anglican theologian, uh, lived here in California uh, for some time. He says this, so for Paul to call Jesus ha kurios, the Lord, that's why we call uh, the curiosity eleison, Lord have mercy, curios, Lord, eleison, have mercy. So for Paul to call Jesus ha curios, the Lord, was to identify him in the closest possible way with Yahweh, the Lord. And in so doing, also the identity Jesus in the closest possible way with God the Father, who is Yahweh. So I think it's important to recognize that the early Christians, they did recognize one God, and they did recognize the Father as being that one God, but they also recognized that there was this second figure, and then later in church history, a third figure, and the Son and the Spirit are extensions of Yahweh, and, and you know what, Joe, I'm even confident to go back to the Old Testament and say, I think the Trinity is there in the first couple verses. The Father is the Creator, but uh, the Son is the Logos who speaks the world into being. And we see the Holy Spirit hovering there in, what is it, verse 2? I think that this is a very powerful point. I think we can make a Hebrew case uh, for the for the Trinity in the Old Testament. I, I don't want to overstate it. I recognize that, uh, you know, Jesus is ultimately recognized as being an extension of Yahweh. But you know, this is a this is a very powerful point. Christianity is really a mutation of ancient Judaism, and you know it it gives us. Uh, it, it again gives us a, a theology of, of the cross that I think is very powerful. I'm going to pause there. Uh, how about if we talk about some sources, and then in yep. our next program, we can, we can begin to unpackage the apologetic issues. <clears throat> you know, given that, good. given that it's Christmas time, I'm going to recommend some books here. Uh, right off the top, I want to recommend J.I. Packer. Knowing God, I think it's a contemporary classic. Remember, uh, Mortimer Adler would say a great book is a book you can never exhaust. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've read Packer's book a number of times. That chapter on the incarnation, wow. I mean, even if you just read one chapter, uh, 
Knowing God. Uh, a couple. Here's another contemporary book by. I'm happy to say somebody that I knew personally, Michael Green. <clears throat> Excuse me. Michael Green was a Christian theologian. Was a Christian apologist. He wrote more than fifty books. Very gracious. Uh, endorsed one of my books. Joe, he has a little book here called "Who Is This Jesus?" It's just a paperback. Um, you know, you could you could make your way. It's 100 and, 158 pages. I'll tell you, I I don't know that I've read a better book about who is Jesus in a biblical context. I mean, mm. I love this book. It had a big impact on my book, uh, God Among Sages. Now, let me go back into history a little bit. Let's go way back. Let's go to the ancient world. How about St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation? That's where Lewis gets his quote. You know, the son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. That's that's St. Athanasius. And by the way, Lewis calls this book on the incarnation a masterpiece, a theological masterpiece. But how about one more? How about how about let's go to the Middle Ages? How about Cur Deus Homo by Anselm? Cur Deus Homo is Latin for why the God men or why has God become man? Um, that's some, that's some great reading. Um, let me also recommend, however, some of the books that go into these creeds and hymns. Larry Hurtado, uh, a, a great, a really great theologian, passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. He has a book entitled, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Subtitle, Historical Questions About Earliest Devotion to Jesus. Craig Blomberg, Making Sense of the New Testament. Really some terrific books to read, to reflect upon, to help us prepare, um, in a sense, to celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. Great comments and suggestions. Thank you, Ken. Looking forward to the second half of this uh, two-parter. We'll pick it up, as you mentioned, with some of the apologetic import. Uh, you know, I like the ideas that you have given there for books, because that's often an easy way for people to uh, send gifts to each other. Like, what do you get somebody, you know, when you really don't know what they what they need or want? You can always get them one of those books. You know, it's pretty yeah. easy to, to do that kind of shopping online. And, you know, all these books I've recommended, they are paperback and are fairly inexpensive. Great. All right. So we recommend that. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast and be sure to share the link at this time of year. It's always great to be thinking about these things. And we trust uh, you appreciate uh, the comments you're getting from Canada teaching as, as well. Let us know what you think. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter. That's at rtb underscore case samples and we'll be glad to read your comment or question here get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the reasons to believe podcast on apple Podcasts, podbean and most podcast services for can samples this is joe aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of clear thinking Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ 
our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.